Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Leaders in Supply Chain podcast. I am your host, Radu Palamari, Managing Director of Elkut Global. It's my great pleasure to have with us a great guest, Susanna Elvira. She's the VP and Global Head of Human Resources for Ocean and Logistics at AP Miller Maersk. Great professional in the HR field, has been with Maersk for close to 20 years in many different roles across different geographies. And we'll have a very interesting conversation today on the topic of human resources, talent, and ultimately the heart of every organization, its people. Susanna, thanks for joining us from Barcelona. Pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here today. And uh, maybe let's start a little bit with your career, right? So, I mean, people like like you put people like me out of business, right? I mean, if everybody stayed with the same company for 20 years, there's no room for headhunters. But there must be a good reason why you stayed in Musk for 20 years. So maybe give us a two-minute summary of your career with them. Sure. So it is because it has never been boring. That's probably the shortest answer. But I started in Barcelona actually 20 years ago in a distribution center working for IKEA. Then I moved to a role in Madrid where it was a very engaging scene. And after that, I had a very international career that took me from Denmark to Italy, China, back to Denmark and working projects in the US and India. So I would say roles from the front line to headquarters in M&As, in global projects. So quite a fascinating journey. No, absolutely. I mean, you've been all over. And of course, you also spend quite a bit of time in Asia, if I'm not mistaken, right? In, uh, apart right. from India. I lived in Hong Kong and I had a responsibility over the north of Asia and I consider it one of the best moments in my career. Yes, that's what I was hoping you would say because I'm biased being in Asia. So I had to, <laughs> it was I had an easy answer. <laughs> <laughs> to put the plug. Maybe let's talk a little bit also about Maersk and where Maersk is, right? It's going through a great transformation. I, I think the company has a very clear strategy to become and be one of the leading end-to-end supply chain service providers in the world. I'd like to ask you from an HR perspective, right? How do you support that? How do you enable that transformation? I think the um, I have to start with a disclaimer, Rado, because I feel we are... A in such earlier stages of the transformation that telling the story is a little bit earlier. We feel sometimes in an optimistic day, we say we are at the end of the beginning. And in a pessimistic day, we are saying, oh, we have a long way to go still. So, and then the second thing is that when you tell stories, sometimes you tend to tell them in a linear manner. You tend to say, we did this, and then this happened. And then this was the consequence. But that's not how it happens in reality. I think businesses are way too complex and so is life. You basically have some levers that you start adjusting and and eventually they interact with each other and impact each other. And I think, to be honest, that's a little bit the discovery process that we are going through MERSC right now. And what it becomes clear to us when we start our transformation is that as any other company today is a story about also technology and technology is at the center and is at the core of the innovation and the products we are creating. And, but eventually you realize that the biggest differentiator if technology is one of the major shifts that is happening is that for us, the biggest differentiator is the possibility to amplify technology or to power up technology through a shift towards more humanism. So we realize that in this transformation, 
we are going to have to redefine the relationships with our customers and we're going to have to redefine the relationships internally. So somehow we find ourselves realizing that this is not going to be about a few telling the majority what to do, but actually we have to let everyone in. We have to change the conversations internally and we need to turn upside down some of the more traditional models we have used in leadership. So some of the things we have done, for instance, to be very, very concrete. I don't know how you guys do it in Alcott Global, right? But our way of setting targets was extremely traditional. So some a group here will tell these are going to be our target. And a group here would say, oh, but that's not possible, right? And we would enter that dance every year where I say you have to do 210. And you tell me we can do eight because of the market, the resources and so forth. And then eventually we are going to end up somewhere around nine, eight, forty-five. And then uh, two months later, somebody will say, and now you have to do 20% more. And that is a cycle that repeats all the time. But if you think about it, it's a cycle of mistrust internally. What you are actually creating is teams that are not united by a common purpose. Basically, what they are actually is spending all the time negotiating with each other before we even start talking to our customers. So we actually start thinking there is a very different way. And, and there is already a lot of research that says that it's a very different way. So we decided that we were going to put all our effort on communicating the vision, where we were going, why did we think we had something that our customers could benefit from? Why did we think that it was worth it for us to explore how to understand our customers' needs better and use our size to serve them better. I can't stress how disproportionately we communicated and communicated and communicated. And then we said, now you tell us what you think you can achieve. And at that moment, if I can go back in time, I will tell you that we held our breaths, right? We have some numbers on a piece of paper in front of us. And, but we had just let the teams decide what they thought they could do. And what happened was what we knew it would happen. The teams came back with much more than we had in that piece of paper. Because all in a sudden, this was not anyone telling them what to do. These were them being part of something exciting and a dream and an ambition. And that has started changing the conversation. So probably that was one of the first things. And I think the second thing I would probably say it was our leadership model or the way we see the role of the leader, where traditionally is these heroics where you have to go and take up that hill, right? And then the leader goes at the front and there is something heroic about it. But there is also something about being in the spotlight. And we said, no, but that's not the role of the leader. The role of the leader is actually to be at the service of the team, is actually provide the information, the knowledge, the resources, the tools, and then get out of the way so the team can run and actually be successful. And I think that was a shift that is still ongoing because it, it created a lot of vulnerability in our leaders who would actually say, I hear what you're saying and I understand what you're saying logically. I just don't know how to do it. And we actually had to go back also as a function in HR with leadership programs that gave them tools to lead in that different way. 
And as I said, we're only at the beginning of the journey. There is still a long way to go. But I think those two shifts and that trend towards being more human and being more comfortable with being a human has been at the core of the changes um, in this transformation. Awesome. Some great examples. And if I can kind of summarize the word that came to mind for your first piece with you tell us what the target should be is um, empowerment fancy word sometimes it gets overused but it's that's what it is right you know it's up to you right it's 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 on you of course it, it kind of brings the thought of okay <laughs> i hope they don't come up with a five <laughs> on that scale that you use for 10 right but but yeah usually pe people don't disappoint and i want to ask you a little bit on your second point right with the leaders not knowing how to do it and my background 10 15 20 years ago was actually in organizational development coaching executive coaching leadership development how was your the beginning, right, the journey? But are there certain things that you saw or you experienced that worked better to almost reinforce those behaviors? Because I think that model of leadership where the leader is, you know, <laughs> the, I don't know, Richard Branson, or there's a couple of models like that, right? I think that's fairly commonly, uh, you know, Elon Musk type. And whereas where the other model where it's like get out of the way and empower people is, I guess, less, uh, it's talked about, but less heroic. So how, how do you reinforce that? Or how do you even set the examples and give people the examples that, okay, this is what good looks like? I think we started the conversation by actually having engagement as a health metric. So that was the number one health metric, but it was not the HR health metric. It was the business health metric. So when we started actually all the conversations and all our operational reviews and quarterly reviews, discussing engagement, then, um, and, and the processes that actually fed engagement, then it started becoming very clear to our organization that we meant it, that this was not HR going on the stage and saying engagement is important, empowerment is critical, but actually that this was integrated in the way of doing business. And I think that was the first clue for many that we meant what we were saying. And what we found, and this was maybe the second test to how much we meant this trend towards humanism, right? is that we have connection surveys. So these are surveys that happen twice per year and they give us score on how engaged is a particular team for a particular leader. And then some of our leaders came back with really low scores. And then again, we had a choice. What do we do in this case, right? Do we actually use the hammer, right? Do we use like, okay, you failed and then um, now you are not part of the future of MERS? Or do we say, you know, it's okay not to know. It's okay to feel a little bit lost. As long as you want to learn, we are here for you to make the transition. So we decided to do that. We decided to go and say, that's okay. It's your first time, your second time. As long as you want to learn, we are here for you. And I think that was the second signal we were sending to the organization, because I would say in a transformation, the critical element is consistency. You can't say one thing and act in a different way, or you can't be volatile where today we're doing this and tomorrow we do that. So we test all our choices against, is this consistent where we are going? So we basically went back to our leaders and held them by the hand, right? I said, okay. And some of them got executive coaches. So some of them needed somebody with them to help them make the transition. We took our executives through a program called Transformation at the Peak, where they spent for a week actually reflecting and discussing about their leadership. They went through a huge battery of tests, which 
were confidential only for them. We never saw them as a company. But we were trying to do is that they couldn't hide. I mean, there were so many numbers and so much input. They had to actually hold the mirror against themselves, right? And say, okay, this is actually who I am and how I come across as a leader. And, and actually, you know what I thought it was actually interesting was that actually because of the partner we work with, this happened in Colorado, which meant that for the majority of the leaders who went to this program, they were in the off time zone. So when they were there, everybody else was sleeping or having dinner or really off work. That meant they really, really focused during those weeks that they were there. So we basically try to reinforce both through development interventions, but also behaviors that as long as you're willing to explore it and be vulnerable and develop, we are going to be there for you. And again, I think most leaders, even the ones, and I remember some leaders raising their hand and saying, I just don't know how. Mm. It's okay. we'll, we'll help you. We'll, we'll go together. No, but there's, there's the piece of vulnerability. It's just that we're not really there. I think there's uh, Renee Brown, you probably know her. She's done a lot of work on the power of vulnerability, but it's not uh, whilst yeah, we talk about it, we may say that we understand it logically. In practice, I haven't seen in most corporates, personally, I have not seen many people do it. And I think there's a big, big tide of people putting up a facade that they are in control, yeah. that they have everything figured out when in actual fact, I mean, who predicted COVID? Who predicted, uh, you know, 18 months at home? I mean, I think nobody, right? So, and I think everybody was stressed in one way, shape or form. It's just that, uh, you know, uh, maybe we didn't show it. And that brings me, I actually uh, prompted an example. So about 15 years ago, we did an intervention for um, fairly, it was half almost military organization, but it was half run as a private company and they in Singapore. And then they were trying to change the model from command control to okay let's do coaching and mentoring because they were losing the young blood coming in the organization they were coming in generation y at that point or whatever the name was and they said yeah i'm not just coming here to for somebody to tell me what to do so the new ceo said look i mean i I cannot i'm losing all the talent on average interesting part on average because it was such a technology almost rocket scientists right things like that uh, it took them three to five years to train somebody to the point where they would actually bring value to the organization. But this new blood would leave within one or two years. So like, you know, we are doomed if we don't do something. So they ended up in that situation. So the CEO said, look, we need to ingrain a culture of coaching, mentoring, a way in which the manager is more, you know, responsible for the team than the other way around. So we did an intern- and the, I remember vividly the CEO sat in the training himself he took feedback himself because he had to show that he's taking feedback otherwise you don't walk in the talk and one of the heads of the engineering one of the you know the smartest people in the room was like ah this is rubbish i go (laughs) and this i don't need somebody to tell me about mentoring so then the left the room then the ceo actually went and pulled him physically back and said no you sit here and you listen because we need to improve this in the company so that's a very clear example for the rest of the 400 managers and you know they were all trained but to your point right you have to walk the talk otherwise you know it's just you know warm fuzzy it's like you know better go for drinks and don't waste time with you know with with you it's such a waste of time right and i think these are the many conversations we had at the beginning do we mean this and we tested ourselves i mean If we do, then we have to be willing to go all the way. 
And as I said, we are only at the beginning of it because this is a big, complex organization and our customers' needs are wonderfully diverse, right? We have to internalize that you can't possibly control it. The organization is made by the hundreds of thousands of decisions that colleagues around the world make every day. Thinking that you can control that is such a cognitive illusion, right? Is, is the belief that you can actually control that. You are fooling yourself. And I think it's that consistency that we have to test all the time ourselves. And to be completely honest, when we are together in the leadership team, sometimes we take three steps forward and one step back. And somebody has to call it out in the room and say, hey, this is the old behavior. And we say, oh, okay. But it's so ingrained. I think it is, that's actually very critical and something we also repeat. Don't try to get there overnight. Don't aim at being perfect tomorrow because it's not going to happen. As long as you keep going in the right direction and as long as you keep being curious about it, that's okay. Just keep going. Because it was important for us not to alienate also people, right? That we build this bar that everyone was measuring against and saying, well, I'm not enough. None of us is enough. So just keep going. So and that I think that unleashed energy in the organization. Everybody was in the same boat at the same time. Mm. Yeah, we're, we're getting quite a few people. I just pulled one of the comments, Uzoma. Uh, he's saying that he fully agrees with the thoughts shared. We're getting a, quite a few questions. As always, do comment your questions and I'll ask Susanna. I guess another point that I wanted to ask you before we jump to some of the questions. How do you recruit also on bringing new talent, new blood? I know that Maersk has a super culture, right, in terms of very, very clear values that drive the organization. In this transformation, you also need to get an infusion of new talent, I guess. So what's your criteria? You know, do they fit or do they not fit? <laughs> it's funny to ask that because if the first health metric was engagement, the second health metric was actually capabilities. It became obvious to us that what we wanted to do we didn't know how to do it internally. So we had to bring new friends and colleagues from the outside, mostly with logistics and services background, environmental and engineers and technologists that actually would bring that knowledge that we didn't have. You have to think if you've been playing basketball all your life and tomorrow you have to start playing football, doesn't matter how good of an athlete you are, <laughs> you actually have to learn new skills and in space, sometimes you won't be able to do it, right? So we wanted to say, how do we preserve what we have while we invite all this knowledge that, that we are missing? So we've been doing actually quite heavy recruitment the last two years. And but to your question, it's been very important for us, the how. So it's not only a story of the what. So we do need a particular set of knowledge and skills, but we need people who actually are aware that is not about their own success, it's actually about the success of a team. And ultimately, it's about creating value for the customer. So we make sure that we have to change the speed of our recruitment process because the market is very hot. So we basically have to go faster than we used to. And we had to activate networks. We realized that actually networks were actually really effective and a really, really solid way to bring people who were more attuned to our way of working. And then recently, we used to have a couple of assessment tools that we used in recruitment, both in terms of behaviors and cognitive abilities. We removed them from our recruitment process. And the reason why we did that is because at the same time, we wanted to avoid to hire clones, right? So when we had a particular set of behaviors that we used to say, 
these are the right behaviors to look for in candidates. In the end, we ended up hiring exactly the same people. So we said, no, we actually need to be more open to meet people who get to solutions in a different way. So again, we have to train our leaders to recruit in a different manner. So I have a lot of empathy for our leaders and colleagues around the world. That is the level of change has been quite big in the last two, three years, but, um, but everyone is a trooper. So we keep going. No choice. I mean, change is, is the only constant, I guess. Our friend Andre was asking you, supply chain is a competitive market. Actually, probably in the last 12 months is the most, <laughs> I'm, you know, it's starting to get uh, hotter than technology. How do you keep your talent in so much competition? So the other angle, right? How do you also retain the key people in the company? Well, actually, it's not dissimilar to how we engage, right? At the end, it's the, it's the same. So we've found out that a lot of the talent we are attracting, actually, they are really motivated and inspiring by the transformation we are undergoing. So there is a level of complexity and there is a level of service to others that actually is quite attractive. So obviously, we've adjusted our compensation packages and we've made sure they remain competitive. But to be completely honest, you wouldn't compete by financials today because as you said, it's such a hot market that basically it would always be a revolving door. So our insight so far and what we hear from our newcomers is two things. One is a really cool challenge. So they really say is there is so much improvement opportunity in the industry that being part of the solution, it is energizing and exciting. And the second thing they say is it's fun to be here. And sometimes they say, you guys, you're a bunch of good people. So um, so I think there's also something about it. It's, uh, people feel welcome when they come. Once they go through the first moments of fighting bureaucracy and some of the legacy problems we have in mask, right? But, uh, but once they go through that phase, they say, it's not a bad place to be. Super. On the topic of, uh, and we had one question as well, uh, this ongoing, I guess, situation with COVID-19. And there is a reality that we briefly touched upon. It's been difficult for most of us. It has changed also how companies work, working from home, working remotely and all of that. Maybe tell us a little bit about, and I know that Maersk has implemented certain initiatives and has you know, many, many different good ways in which you made sure that people are comfortable and that are taken care of. Maybe share with us some examples of practical things that you did. Sure. So as everyone else in the industry, so this is not being missed, right? I think we had an acquired responsibility to keep the supply chains moving. And, and in this, I, I reach out to everybody else in the industry. I think we all realized that it was something we basically, we couldn't close shop, right? And then as a result of that, then the first priority becomes the safety of our colleagues. And you think in terms of physical safety, for our colleagues in distribution centers, but our brave women and men at sea, but also mental health safety, because the problem with the pandemic is that it has it all, is tragic, is complex, and it's been sustained for a very long time. And that puts so much stress in everyone, right? And for us, it's been fundamental most of our colleagues around the world that were sitting in offices, yes, they could be at home working when they were co in confinement, but I don't know what is your case. I know my case, and I know the case of many of our colleagues. You had to do homeschooling at home with the children. You had to prepare dinners and lunches and be in meetings all day. 
So we've actually put a lot of effort in terms we've been running global webinars to detect burned out and stress, to give tools to colleagues and managers how to identify it and also how to approach it when I was happening. We had uh, run global calls with medical experts uh, for all employees, so our colleagues would have access to reliable information. We have, in those places where the governments have allowed us to do it or asked for our help, we run vaccination campaigns in our offices, so we could actually contribute to the speed of vaccination. So I think the focus has always been making sure our colleagues are physically safe, making sure that they had access to tools to handle the stress of our mental health and then keeping access to information to make sure they could actually know what was happening when. As everybody else, then with uh, all these things, it don't, just don't seem enough, right? When uh, we've also had some lessons of people who have loved their loved ones, right? So it's still ongoing. And this is, by the way, something we need to remind ourselves. We tend to think that because in some parts of the world, the vaccination campaigns are very advanced, MERS operates in a global stage. And that means that many of our colleagues are still undergoing very severe situations in their location. So we need to make sure we keep it very focused. I'll pull this very good question that came in from Andoni. Gender and inclusion, I think there's, there's been quite a long journey on this one and still a long way to go. And if you have any policies around diversity in top management, gender inclusion in top management. Oh, that's, that's a question very close to my heart. I am an unapologetic feminist and I have no problem in saying it out loud as often as I can. I think indeed it is an industry and a social challenge. So, and as a result of that, obviously it is something that MERSC is struggling with. We have many policies, so we actually, we don't lack policies and we lack success. And that's where our focus has to be in the next years. We have to crack this nut. We have programs for our uh, younger women and up and coming talent. We have programs for leaders and employees on beating biases. We have targets. And my own learning having worked in this space for a long time is that to make progress when it comes to diversity and inclusion is when you are driving and you have your foot in the accelerator. If you don't have the foot in the accelerator, all the time, then inertia, because where we're coming from, basically holds any progress. So for us, our focus right now is in equitable career progress and actually making sure that we create workspaces where people actually can strive because of who they are. And it's not only gender, but also that we actually use a magnifier in our uh, talent pipelines and make sure that we actually stay very, very close to the progress of our women and other underrepresented populations. It's a source of frustration, to be completely honest, but it cannot be a source of despair. We have to keep going. Any, you know, as a woman yourself, right? So I guess any examples of things that you saw work better than others? I mean, personally, I'm with you. I think we, we should strive for diversity. We will get there, I'm 100% convinced. Not 50-50. I don't believe in 50-50. And I don't think that's desirable neither. I mean, there's always going to be certain industries that's, you know, it does not happen in nature. We don't achieve perfect balance, but also it shouldn't be like 80-20 or, you know, then then it's, it swings the other way. But I guess, are there certain things that you saw work better than others? 
Sometimes I I joke with some friends. I don't know if it's been naivety from my side or craziness, right? But I have always believed that I should use my voice, that I was entitled to use my voice. And I spoke up, even when sometimes I later thought, oh, maybe <laughs> maybe that was not the place. Maybe I should have. So I actually do think that makes a difference, that you actually know that your voice is worth being heard as much as any other voice around the room. So don't let other people provide value to who you are and your worth and your voice. Your voice is worth it. So I think that has been, I would say, on a mindset perspective, if I was in the room, I was going to speak. And then in a practical level, I am a mother of twins and they are nine now. And I am very disciplined on making sure everything at home is taken care of. And so I can dedicate my time to what I love, which is my work and it's my passion, but also my family in a way that is, is respectful to both. And, and maybe what I would say nine years later, I believe it's possible. I believe it is not in conflict, but I know because it happened to me earlier in my career that you have those doubts. Can you actually be a good mother, a good spouse, a good sister, a good friend, and having a career? And nine years later, I guess I still don't know the answer because it's going to take a long time, hopefully, for my daughters to prove me wrong or right. But now I am more convinced than ever that I am not less of a good mother and I'm not less of a good professional. So, um, so I would say just keep going and uh, look for people who help you making those reflections. Love the, love the examples. On the passion side, Susanna, maybe tell us what are some of the key things that you love about being in HR? <laughs> well, I've been here for 20 years, right? So by now, I think... Uh, so I you think better have a lot. <laughs> exactly. So I better have a good reason. And, and I do. I actually do. I am part of a team of people, right? Whether in this case, is is my human resources fellows and friends and colleagues. We have a common purpose. So for me, my purpose is imagine if your work allows you to align dozens or hundreds of thousands of people around the world behind an idea that is worthy. Imagine if your work is about creating spaces where people can feel valued, treated with dignity, and be excited to do more, grow more, learn more. And imagine if these people go home and when their loved ones ask them, do you have a good day in the office today? Or did you have a good day at work today? They said, I loved it. I have fun. I learned something. I helped somebody promote, oh, we are solving this problem for the customer and it's so intellectually demanding. I don't know how to solve it, right? Imagine that your work is marginally play a role in making that happen. And if you do, then you can see that for me, turning my computer on in the morning is actually quite an easy thing. So, uh, so that's why I have stayed in HR for so long. No, that's beautifully said. You might make me apply for the next job in Maersk, HR. <laughs> no, do that. <laughs> we are always helping. <laughs> we are approaching the end. I, w I also want to ask you from a younger, and we've had one or two people that commented from a younger generation, if you may, or people that are now entering the workforce, what would be one or two pieces of advice from your career that you would share that were the most helpful to you? I think one I have said already, right? This thing about use your voice, speak up, 
you have the knowledge, the passion, and the right to do it. And if you are in the room, it's because we want to hear you. And the other one, which is actually almost on the other side of it, is listen. So be curious, remain very attentive at everything that is happening around you and the new trends and the new developments and listen from people and catch that, the wisdom that is already around you. And I think if you balance that with that passion, then I think you will actually go very far. And then I'm actually, it's a children's movie actually, but it is a fantastic quote in a children's movie that I have to say really relates to how I have approached my own career. And it says, have courage and be kind. And if you actually work that way, I think you will go really, really far. Yes, we had, uh, and I will recommend to anybody who hasn't listened to it, we had uh, Shelley Archambault. She actually wrote a book called Unapologetically Ambitious. She was the first woman color CEO in Silicon Valley 20 years ago. So to your point, right, it's not necessarily about women or men or gender. But it does seem, there seems to be a pattern that for women, it, it can be a little bit, this voice and speaking up can be more of an issue than for men, just statistically. But it speaks a lot to your point, right? And, you know, speak up, be heard. Uh, you will be heard if you speak up, otherwise it cannot be. And then take that, uh, or have the courage to take those steps and try new things as well, right? Because otherwise, uh, you know, it wouldn't happen. So on that note, I Susanna, think- thanks. Yeah. Mm. No, I was just about to say, and where we are solving the rest, right, then don't let anyone put you in a box, right? So a lot has to be solved around you. But uh, while we're working on that, then you do yourself, don't let that happen. That's a little bit what I wanted to finish by saying. Excellent. Well, much, much appreciate the conversation today and the time. Thanks for joining us, Susanna. And uh, good luck. And hopefully we do another one in one or two years. uh, You will tell us how the journey completed. I'm sure you will be on a new journey by then. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, thank you very much, Rado. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to go to www.elcotglobal.com and click the podcast button for all the show notes of the interview. Also, subscribe to our mailing list to get our latest updates first. If you're listening through a streaming platform like iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, we would appreciate a kind review. Five star works best to keep us going and our production team happy. And of course, share it with your friends. I'm most active on LinkedIn, so do feel free to follow me. And if you have any suggestions on what what to do and who to invite next, don't hesitate to drop me a note. And if you're looking to hire top executives in supply chain or transform your business, of course, contact us as well to find out how we can help.